We're in the uh, ninth chapter of the book of Romans. We got down to chapter 9 last time. Um, we, we looked at this, I don't know, maybe a year and a half, two years ago in Bible study. We, we went through Romans 9, 10, and 11. Um, and so we're going to go over it again just like we never have. For those that have already heard, I'm sorry, but I'm sure there'll be new stuff brought out of it. Backing up just a little bit to where we were uh, in Romans 8. So he talks about the, the work of God in bringing man to salvation and the surety of this redemption that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. That height nor depth, principalities nor powers, that there's nothing that can take away the redemption that God has given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's certain, sure, and steadfast through all things. It's not going to be taken away, can't be taken away, can't be affected and can't be moved by anything that the world would bring about, that the devil would bring about, that the church would bring about. You know, you, you think about, I guess that really don't come to our mind today, but when the Lord healed the man that was born blind and they asked his parents... What happened? Because he could see now. They wanted to get to the bottom of it. And they said, ask him. He's an adult. And they didn't testify because they knew that they would be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to be put out of the church in that day. Well, if the church puts you out, it's not going to alter what God's done for you in Christ Jesus. That It is an unmovable, steadfast, and certain work. But he covered, and just briefly, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. And from that he went through the wonderful doctrine of the assurance of salvation. And now he's going to go back and we're going to go through. And, you know, there's many opponents of the thought of predestination, of election, of the hand of God bringing to pass salvation for man. And yet, this chapter, I don't know what you're going to do with this chapter in the Word of God. God saw fit to write Romans chapter number 9, and I believe that God's going to sew it up so tightly that man can't worm his way out from under it. And there's other Scriptures through the Gospel of John, through the Lord's teachings, Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 2, in Galatians 3 and 4, there's other scriptures that tie it up, but probably not, not as, as tight as what we're going to see here in Romans 9. So, starting in verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So first, first and foremost, this will put an end to the doctrine that all of the natural seed of Abraham is going to be saved at the end. If that was the case, if the Apostle Paul believed that and knew that, then why is he going around with continual sorrow and grief in his heart. And in chapter 10, his heart's desire and prayer to God is that they'd be saved. They needed to be saved, just like the Gentiles needed to be saved. And anyone, no matter what their natural race or inclination is in this world, no one is saved outside of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Paul says that his heart is heavy, his desire is that they would be born again, that they would come to the gospel. And he says, I could wish that myself were accursed. That word's a, that's anathema. That's devoted to God for destruction. Paul says, I would that I would be accursed, that they could be saved. And I realize that's a strong saying. This is not the only place you see that. Uh, God is proclaiming judgment against Israel. And Moses himself says, God, if you're not going to go with them, and if you're going to knock them out, then blot my name out of the book as well. 
the love that God had put in these men for their people and uh, in Moses' heart for Israel, a people that the God's truth, most of them despised Him and rejected Him and cast Him away. And yet the love of God that was in them caused them to pray that prayer unto God. Now we know by the verses previous, if Paul saved, nothing can end that. He cannot lose that. He cannot devote himself to destruction that these people would get saved. That's not the way that works. And he's not saying that either. But he's saying that his desire is so great that they would be saved, he could wish that. And in Samuel, 1 Samuel, I believe there was a man that loved King Saul more than anybody else in Israel. This was God's man that had anointed him. And God's rejected him and cast him away. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 35, And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? God had rejected. The work was done. Saul's, uh, Saul had been refused because of his rebellion to the word of God. And yet Samuel's love for Saul. You see that? Samuel loved him and he mourned him and he wept over him. No doubt praying and making intercession for him. And so in the heart of those that are God's men, you see this kind of love for the souls of man. And that's the kind of love that Paul had for his kinsmen according to the flesh. Who are Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. So if you remember back earlier in this book, he asked the question and he says, what profit or advantage is there of being a Jew? Is there any advantage? If the Jew is lost and needs redemption just the same as the Gentile does, then what advantage is there of being a Jew? And he says there, unto them were committed the oracles, the utterances, the word of God was committed to them. And though they needed saved just like the Gentiles, they had knowledge of a God that was angry with sin that required blood as payment for sin, that they were not going to be accepted by their works, and that there was a Messiah yet to come. They had that knowledge revealed by God. The Gentiles didn't know anything. They didn't know anything about God. They didn't know anything about His judgments. They were apt to believe whatever superstitious tale was told to them. So you see, when Christ comes, the gospel begins to be preached the Jews have already got a knowledge that the rest of the world did not have. But he's going to look a little closer at what the Israelites had. To whom pertaineth the adoption? So God in the Old Testament took Abraham and Abraham's lineage after him and made them his people. In Amos chapter number 3, Amos chapter 3, verse number 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. So God testifies that out of every nation, every kindred, And every blood on the face of the earth, only Israel has he known, has he been intimate with, has he dwelt among, and has he revealed his word to. The rest of the world, and I I feel like this is widely known and understood, 
by God's choice, Israel had a greater knowledge, greater understanding, and a greater opportunity than anybody else on the face of the earth. God brought them in out of all the nations and made them His people. So whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory? So if you look in Exodus, chapter number 33, verse 16, there God says, I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to send an angel. And Moses says, and I'm paraphrasing, it's not a quote. Moses says, you're what makes us to differ from all the other nations of the earth is that you go with us. And if you're not going, then I'm not going. And so what's he talking about here? They had the ark that they carried with them as they moved through the wilderness. And above that ark was the presence of God. At at night, it was a fire. At day, it was a cloud. But there was always the glory and the presence of God that was there amongst the children of Israel. No other nation had God marching with them like Israel had marching with them. And so the covenants. God made a covenant with Abraham. God came down, and remember Abraham divided the animals, set one side against another. Instead of signing a contract in that day, they divided animals and the two parties walked in between. God put Abraham in a deep sleep and a smoking furnace and a burning lamp, I believe is the way the Bible says, came down and went between those animals. God made a covenant that I'm going to bring redemption and salvation through your seed. God did not make that covenant with anybody else alive on the earth in that day. He did not. So the covenant, not only that, but the covenant of the law as well, and we're going to see that, the law. In Deuteronomy, Moses says, what nation is there on the face of the earth that has laws and statutes like unto this? God gave Israel not just a law to protect people. God gave Israel a law that brought an understanding to them of the righteousness and holiness of God. A law that God revealed what He saw as right and holy and pure and what it took to be accepted with Him. And no other nation on the face of the earth had a law that revealed the righteousness and holiness of God as that law did. And the service. They had a priesthood that God ordained and set in order. They had a a, a tabernacle or a temple later on in the history of Israel. They had an altar. They had a place where they could come and offer sacrifice unto God for the atonement of sins. And as a thanksgiving offering, they had a means that they could come to a priest and he could offer a sacrifice for them and make intercession to God for their need. No other nation had access to God like Israel did. There was no other nation that had a temple. No other nation had an altar. No other nation had a place that they would come and God would hear and meet with them. And remember, God promised in Solomon's day that if my people will turn and if they'll look towards this place and if they'll call on me, I'll hear from heaven. No other nation had that promise from God Himself. The services and the promises. So God gave promise to Israel that of their seed, the Savior was going to come. And God certainly fulfilled that promise. He gave that to Eve from the seed of the woman. He gave that through Moses. Moses said, there's coming a prophet like me. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. And those promises were given explicitly to Israel. Jesus didn't come through another nation. He came 
as an Israelite from the tribe of Judah, the lineage of David. And so he says in the next verse there in Romans, whose were the fathers? You know who they could trace their name back to? <clears throat> Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and all the men of God, all of those, you look in Hebrews 11, all of those patriarchs of faith, all of those men that faith wrought these great works in and through, they was of that lineage. They wouldn't some rough, idolatrous bunch of people that they had come from. They come from people <clears throat> that knew God, that knew the law of God, and that God knew them. Whose were the fathers? And of whom after the flesh Christ came. You can look in Matthew chapter 1, and there you're going to see in the first verse that Christ was the son of David and the son of Abraham. There, Christ made His advent to the earth through them. And in Christ, <clears throat> this may be a hard pill to swallow right off the bat, but you think on it and study on it, and it's the truth. Christ was the fulfillment of every promise that God made to Abraham, that God made to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to David. Jesus Christ fulfilled all of those promises. Now there's a lot of folks that would disagree, but according to the Word of God in the New Testament, all of the promises of God are yea in Him. And that's not an exact quote, but that's, that's out of the book. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of every promise that God made. And so, they had all of this blessedness. <clears throat> How did they get it? Did they earn it? Were they worthy of it? <clears throat> did they do something that God rewarded them for their works? Were they special? I, Moses lays it every bit out in Deuteronomy. None of those things are the case. But God, by divine choice, <clears throat> chose to give that to them. Now the very people <clears throat> that will argue the hardest with you about election today, they believe everything that I just said about Israel. God elected Israel to be His people and brought them in. Well, it's no different today either. But now look, they've got all of this blessedness. God has given them, and you know, we, we covered it very quickly, this list of things. You could spend a lot of time looking at all that God provided Israel. And yet look at how they are in Paul's day. Here they are. The majority, now there's some that are saved. But the majority of Israel has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and by the testimony of Paul the Apostle who was a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, his testimony is that they need to be saved. <clears throat> now how can that be? If anybody, if anybody's going to be saved, would it not be these people? Think about that now. <clears throat> After the flesh, if anybody's going to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, would it not be those that have this great base of knowledge already established down in their hearts? <clears throat> and if the Jew who knows the judgment and the wrath of God, who knows the Messiah that's coming, if the Jew rejects Him, then what hope is there for anybody else? See, after the flesh, that's the way man thinks. If the Jew's going to reject Him, then nobody's going to accept Him. <clears throat> but it ain't by knowledge and understanding. So listen to what he says in verse 6. Not as though the Word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. <clears throat> so did God then, and this is what he's saying, 
Not that it taken none effect. That means to drop away, to be driven out of course, or to lose. So did God waste all of this effort? Did God waste all of this knowledge by giving it to Israel? Was it, did they drive the Word of God off course? Was this of no value to them? Now that's what he's saying. Now, if the majority of them disbelieve, wouldn't that be what you'd say? Well, all that effort, all that preaching, all of that knowledge was wasted on these people. Not as though the Word of God had taken none effect. It's not that the Word of God's been inefficient or that God's not got the job done through the gospel. Man thinks that today as well. Well, with the gospel's just not getting the job done. Though the majority may not be being saved and they may not be believing it, you can rest assured on this. The Word of God is accomplishing its purpose to perfection and it's prospering in the work that God has sent it to do. The Word of God never misses its mark and it's never ineffective. It can't be. So, well, we've had revival and nobody gets saved. Well, that was a waste. Well, that's the way man thinks in the flesh. Well, you should have talked them in. You should have got them in. Well, know this. If it's the gospel led by the Spirit, the purpose of God has been accomplished by the gospel no matter what the outward response is to it. God is not always requiring a positive response to the gospel. That's true. And we're going to see it more and more as we look. For they're not all Israel which are of Israel. So you got, you got two Israels, wouldn't you say? I mean, I, I don't know of any other way that you're going to chop that up that it's going to make sense. But you've got an Israel as God sees and counts Israel. And you've got an Israel that's from the loins of the man Jacob. They got their name from God who changed Jacob's name. Remember that? They're referred to as the children of Israel because they are descendants from the man Jacob whose name was changed to Israel. So God says, they're not all Israel that are from Jacob. Just because they're born of the right seed and lineage, that does not mean that they're a part of the Israel of God. Now if you need an example of that, you've got Pharisees, Sadducees, lawyers, arguing with the Lord Jesus, and they said, we've never been in bondage to any man. That was a lie. They were in bondage to Rome at that time. And we are indeed children of Abraham. We're not mingled. Our bloodline, it's not been marred by Gentiles. We are the pure-blooded descendants of Abraham. Jesus does not say that that's wrong. They are indeed the pure blood descendants after the flesh from Abraham. But they were not the Israel of God, were they? Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, they, they were Abraham's children after the flesh. But there's another work that was missing. He said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do Abraham's works. But you seek to kill me. You're of your father, the devil. So see, there's two Israels there. There's the one that's after the flesh, and there's the one that's after the Spirit. They're those that are naturally born children of Israel, and the majority of those at the time of this writing were lost and needed to be saved. But there's an Israel also by faith, an Israel of God, that God's brought in, and you know, that Israel of God, again in Matthew chapter 1, you can turn and look. And you're going to find Rahab, a Gentile harlot of the city of Jericho. You're going to find Ruth, 
a Gentile Moabitess that's brought in as well, and others also. They're not the only ones. But now how does that work? How did they get in? It's by the work of faith of Almighty God. That's the way it's always been. And we'll see that as we look onward. But just because they're natural born, that does not mean that they're the Israel of God. Now you can apply this to us today. Do people in church have a greater knowledge? I mean, I I believe this. I believe people in our area that attend church, they know this much. They know there's a judgment that's to come. They know that those that are lost and undone, that they're going to be cast into hell for eternity. They know that the Lord Jesus was a sacrifice for their sins, and they know that in Him they can be forgiven and be accepted with God. We everyone know that. We know that because of our association with the church. And yet not all Israel, not all of the outward body are saved and born again and a part of the real Israel of God. Same situation in the Old Testament as well. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So now, we're going to take examples from the Old Testament and we're going to pin it down. Now look, this is proven. This is proven in the Word of God because all of Abraham's children were not chosen. I realize we have Ishmael, and he's the the popular, the well-known son of Abraham that was rejected, but there were more sons as well. After Sarah died, I believe there were six more sons that were born to Abraham, and none of those were chosen in the lineage either. But it was Isaac... And it was Isaac alone that God chose to carry the promise and the lineage of God. In Romans 2, now we looked at this previously, and I'm sure you'll remember this. Verse 28, He is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So God Himself says that those that are Jews are not the ones in the flesh. But the real Jews have a work of God that has taken place in the inward man whether they're children of Abraham or Gentiles, that has no bearing in the Israel of God. What must be there is, as David said, the new birth, the work of God in the heart producing a new creature. And so, neither because of the seed of Abraham. So in Genesis chapter 21, let's look back here. Genesis 21, verse number 12. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Abraham, put him out and send Hagar with him because I am not going to bless his seed and his lineage. I have chosen Isaac to be the bearer of the promise of God, and he's the son that's going to be blessed. In Genesis 25, and I I mentioned this, but let's just turn there and read it as well. Verse number 1, Then again Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bare him Zimran and Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua, and Jokshan begot Sheba, and Dedan, 
And the sons of Dedan were Ashram and Latushim and Leumim. We could go on. But Abraham had more family. So was it every child of Abraham that was saved and a part of the lineage of God? <clears throat> it was not. <clears throat> there was one that was accepted and the rest were rejected. I don't, know, I don't know how you can argue with that. So it could be said this though. Well, Abraham only had the one son of Sarah. And the other children, they were from different women. And you say, well, that's the reason then that Isaac was chosen and the other was called. But he says, we're going to get it a little closer in verse number 8. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Now that, that can be quickly read over. But the weight of that verse right there and how that bears on a lot of doctrine that you hear today, who you are in the flesh has absolutely nothing to do with your spiritual standing with God. You could be a founding member of a church. You could have been baptized by the finest pastor in the country. You could have been a perfect attendance to the house of God for year after year after year. None of that has any bearing with your standing towards God any more than me saying, Abraham's my dad. That was not enough to save you in Abraham's day. You know who got saved? The promise. It's the truth. So, let's bring her down a little closer. For this is the word of promise. At that time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. Where's Isaac going to come from? He's going to be produced by a miracle from the hand of Almighty God. Remember how dead her womb was all of her life. And now, not only is she barren, but she's beyond age that even a healthy woman could produce a child. Abraham, his body is dead as well. So this is going to be the product of God. Abraham and Sarah had been together for years and years. And they couldn't produce anything. They couldn't produce a promise of God. God produces as He sees fit and as He chooses. <clears throat> so, not only this, so there's more. But when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. So here, Abraham and Sarah have produced Isaac. And you say, well, all of the other children born to Abraham were born of other women. They did not come from Sarah and that's why that only Isaac was chosen. Well, here you've got Isaac. No argument. That's the chosen son. Who's he married to? Rebekah. And you know, we could turn back to Genesis. Really, let's turn there just for a minute. Genesis chapter 25. How did Isaac come to marry Rebekah? It's really a, it's a beautiful account and story you'll find in Genesis chapter 24. I'm sorry, I think I said 25. But in verse 27, Abraham has sent a servant back to his home country to find a wife for Isaac. And in Genesis 24, 27, And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's 
brethren. So the servant testifies here, God brought me. And where did he come? The first person he met was Rebekah. On over, verse number 50 of this chapter. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing proceedeth from the Lord. We cannot speak unto thee bad or good. So her brother Laban, they testified that God's brought this to pass. One more verse. In verse number 56, And he said unto them, Hinder me not, seeing the Lord hath prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. <clears throat> so Isaac was the chosen son of Abraham, and Rebekah, by every account we can see, and you can read that whole chapter 24 of how Rebekah came to marry Isaac. She was the chosen wife for Isaac from God Himself. God's hand was in the uh, operation of every bit of this, bringing Abraham's servant to her and then bringing her out of her home country back home to Isaac. So here, when Rebekah had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. So there was no funny business here. You might accuse Abraham of funny business, and that's why that only Isaac was chosen. You might do that, and you might have grounds to argue. But here is the chosen man, Isaac, and his chosen wife, Rebekah, and she's going to conceive and get pregnant, not of some other man, but from Isaac himself. You know what she's going to be pregnant with? We all know this story. She's going to be pregnant with twins. Two boys. Jacob and Esau. Now they're both going to be born of the same daddy, Isaac. They're both going to have the same mama, Rebecca. Not only that now, and that's, that's a lot, when you're going to argue what Paul's arguing here. Not only that though, they're going to be twins. They're going to be brought forth from one conception. They're going to come together one time. Both of these boys are going to come from that same conception. She's going to carry them together in the womb and they're going to be born at the same time. Now, by your thinking, who's saved? Well, they both have to be. I mean, they've, they've got everything going for them. For the children, verse 11, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil. Now let's stop right there. And you set your heart on what he's saying right here. People will say, God knew Jacob and what he was going to do, and God knew Esau and what he was going to do. Now I want you to be clear. The Scripture takes that opportunity and that argument away from us. <clears throat> the children not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, works were not, in the least bit considered in the choice and the direction of God. Esau, he was a vain man. He was sinful. But boy, Jacob, he was a good youngin, wasn't he? He was a cheat. He was a liar. He was a deceiver. By his own admission, that's what he was. See, it was, and we're going to see that. Neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of Him that calleth. God's going to order it this way, that it might be known and manifested that it's not of the flesh, <clears throat> it's not of what I do, but it is indeed God 
that makes the difference every single time. <clears throat> Esau is going to be a vain man. Jacob's going to be saved. Now how's that happen? Does God not change Jacob? See, it's not by works. And it's not what man does. And it's not how man thinks. It's by the choice of God. And He is the one that's in control of everything. Now, there will be an argument there. There, there always is. And I don't, I don't believe that going through this is going to convince everybody that hears but I'd like to get it down where we could see that this is what the Bible is telling us and saying. But it's going to be said, well, God then is destroying people. Did God destroy or cause Esau to go astray? See, we've got a backwards look on it every bit. It's not a wonder that God destroyed Esau. You, you know what Esau was. And you know what you say? Esau deserved it. That's no, we don't wonder. We don't sit down and rack our brain and say, why did God bring judgment on Esau? We know why. Because he was evil. Because he rejected God and he cared nothing about the things of God. We know that. i tell you what, what's amazing about this situation. The amazing thing is that God showed mercy to a sinner named Jacob. That God who justly could have destroyed him just like he did his brother, God chose to be merciful Unto one. Now without God's intervention, Jacob's going to be destroyed just like Esau is. He's going to follow his natural course. He is. But God shew mercy to Jacob. Not of works, but of him that calleth. Who does this? Let's look in some of these. Purpose, setting forth, proposal, or intention. God is manifesting His purpose, His intention, His proposal, according to election, divine selection is the definition for that word. Not of works, but of Him that calleth. To call aloud, and directly, I think, of, I think of the call in the graveyard that day to Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. That was allowed and it was direct. It was to him by name. So what made the difference then between Esau and Jacob? It was the call of God that made the difference. It was not works, it was not deeds. So in verse 12, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. So God announces this before that they're ever born. God makes choice. God tells Rebecca, the elder's going to serve the younger. Now you talk about again, going against the flesh. Who's the natural one of the two? It's the firstborn. He's the one that should receive. He's the one that should be chosen. <clears throat> but nothing in the flesh matters or affects the direction of God. He is choosing as He sees fit. In 2 Timothy chapter number 1, verse number 9, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 
So this calling is by the direction and the intention of God Himself and not anything to do with man or what man does. God is sovereign. He has all power, all control, all authority. He does not answer nor respond nor does He have to give reason to anybody. But the real problem and opposition to the doctrine is that we've got a wrong view of what man really is by nature. You see, Jacob and Esau, they're both lost. They're both destined to destruction by their own works, by their own choices, and by their own design. And God chooses to have mercy on one. The other He does not. We'll look. Verse 12, It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Malachi. This is a quote. Paul doesn't make this up in Romans. This is a quote from the Old Testament. Malachi chapter number 1, verse number 2. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. God chose to show mercy to one and to not show mercy to another. He did. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. So did God somehow wrong Esau? Did God do something that was unrighteous? That's equitable. It's what righteous is. Was God unfair in His dealings? And is God unfair in His dealings with man? Well, as we covered in the first few verses, you don't think God was unfair in giving Israel all of these blessings. So God has operated after His will and His counsel all through the history of the world. It's been God's will, God's directive, and God's choice from the very beginning. But again now, the wonder is not that God hated Esau. If I asked you why did God hate Esau, you could give me a thousand reasons why God hated Esau out of the Word of God. But I tell you one you have a harder time with. Why did He love Jacob? What redeeming quality did the man Jacob have before God appeared to him in the wilderness? What good work did Jacob have that he earned or deserved anything from the hand of God? See, there's mankind right there. Mankind is a lump that is lost, that's deceived, that's blinded, and that by nature from day one is a servant of sin and ungodliness. Mankind is a lump that is 100% hateful and rebellious towards God. Man is one that rejects and denies the salvation of the Savior and goes his own way, follows his own will. All of man deserves to be destroyed. All of man by justice and by the law of God deserves to be cut off and cast into hell. So Jacob and Esau, they were both sinful. And God chose to be merciful with one. Why are we saved out of the lump of the earth that there is today? I tell you what this does. This brings me to the place that I've got no good to claim on me, on my name, on my family, 
on the church that I'm affiliated with, on the pastor that I follow. I've got nothing that I can hang on and say, this is why God saved me because I have whatever. There's no claim there. Well, Ishmael was from Hagar, but Esau was not. They were twins, the same father, the same mother. It was before they done any work or deed that the purpose of God according to election might stand. What can you say? Thank God that He saved Jacob. Thank God that He chose to redeem one and He didn't let everybody fall off into hell. That's where we could be. That's our other option. If God's not going to intervene, if God's not going to make a difference, then you can guarantee that everybody that's ever born is going to die and go to hell. There will be no redemption and there will be no salvation. So see, it's, it's a backwards look. This doctrine is hated because of a misunderstanding of what mankind really is. Man thinks there is some redeeming quality in himself. And if I measure myself amongst you and amongst my friends at work, then no doubt I'm going to find something redeeming about me. But that's not wise by the Word of God. When I look at myself by the book, I find a man that through and through from head to foot is cursed by sin. And I can't find one reason whatsoever that God would show me any mercy. So there's no glory to me in what I've done. But when I stand... I can say praise be unto God that showed me mercy and brought me out of my natural state, awakened me from the sleep of death, brought me into the kingdom of His dear Son and saved me. Because it was not of works. If it was of works, I'd have had no hope. It wasn't a family. I wasn't even born of Isaac and Rebekah. Now you think about it now. Esau could say, Isaac is my daddy. Rebekah is my mother. Abraham is my papaw. And Sarah is my mamaw. Can you get any closer than that man in the flesh? But the flesh has no bearing on redemption and salvation by God. I think if there's any scripture that proves that, 